you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? Our passage for reflection this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, if you have a Bible or an app that you'd like to follow along with. We have been walking through this series on Hebrews, following along as the Spirit-led preacher offers this written sermon to a community whom he loves, encouraging them to see and trust in Christ, to persevere. Last week, we reflected on the once and for all nature of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. And from there, he begins to apply what that means for those who have heard this good news. So let's together listen and ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word. Hebrews 10, 19 through 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without waver, wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have a need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you join me in praying? Gracious God, you speak through your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear your word. That your spirit would apply it to our hearts and to our lives this morning. 
that you would allow me to proclaim what you have for your people today. And that, as with any true encounter with your word, we would go forever changed. Be with us, we pray. In the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. All that Angela ever wanted to be was a ballerina. From the beginning of the time when she could talk, she was always going on about dancing, always wanted to read books about ballerinas. Not only did she want to be a ballerina, but she was gifted with the strong and flexible body that a ballerina would need. As soon as she could start taking dance lessons, she did, and she worked hard. And over time, she progressed and excelled year after year. And though it was long and it was arduous and sometimes grueling and taxing on her body, yet she continued to love to dance. As she got into high school, she fixed her sights on Juilliard Dance School, the conservatory which is one of the preeminent places to dance. She applied and she was accepted. But then she had to figure out how to pay. How would she pay for this prestigious school? She applied for as many scholarships as she could. Her parents pooled as much of their money as they could to support her, but with just two days left until registration, she was still $20,000 short. But then a manila envelope came in the mail with a return address from an attorney's office. Inside was a letter stating that her great-uncle, whom she barely knew, had just passed away, leaving her an inheritance of $30,000. The next day, she went and signed up for mechanic school. Doesn't sound right, does it? Doesn't sound right. She loves to dance. She's made to dance. And now the final provision for her to dance at Juilliard has arrived. Why is she rejecting what she's made for? She has the ability, the means, but has failed to follow through at the last moment. It's a parable about unfulfilled expectations, about unfulfilled purpose. We feel that in that story. That story is what the author of Hebrews is seeking to try to prevent. We are those made to worship God. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that we are made in the image of God and we are called to fill the world with his glory. As is expressed in our tradition in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were made to show God's glory, to reflect it in our lives. We were made for worship. But then sin comes. Then comes guilt, pollution, and corruption stands in the way. How can we display the wonder and grandeur of a perfect and holy God when we are stained and corrupted by sin? The letter to the Hebrews explains just how that might be possible. Jesus is the Son of God. 
He surpasses the prophets and the law that came before. He's greater than Moses. He shows us what God wants. And then he offers himself as a sacrifice. Not one like bulls and goats that are in and of themselves not able to save from sin, but a once and for all sacrifice with eternal sufficiency to save us from our sins. Who offers in himself the ability for us to enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. But the question for the Hebrews is, will their unfulfilled expectations, will their desire for what is past and familiar, will their fear of suffering stand in the way of apprehending their purpose? For us this morning, along with the Hebrews, we need to ask, will we trust in what Jesus has done and be faithful worshipers as we are meant to be? Will all that Jesus has come and done as a great high priest, as a sacrifice, as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah, will that lead us into worship? Or will we shrink back? This morning, the author of Hebrews, this morning, God speaking through his word, encourages us in the light of what Christ has done to fulfill our purpose as worshipers. In our passage this morning, we're going to see our calling as worshipers through the three commands, what it means to be worshipers. We're going to seek to heed his warning to worshipers. And then at the end of the passage, look to some practical encouragement as those meant to worship. First, in the beginning, as he writes, he tells us again, We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. He has opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he's saying we have access to God. Jesus has paid the price. He is the priest that rightly offers that sacrifice. And through him, as if through the veil that was torn in the temple, we have access to the holy place. Now what? What does God want us to do with that reality? In the passage, we're given three commands, three encouragements, exhortations. And frankly, I'll acknowledge verses 19 through 25 could be their own sermon. There's a nice three-point sermon. Because Jesus did this, let us do this, let us do this, and let us do this. But I fear that that would diminish the opportunity for us to see the connection between all the parts of this passage here. So let us, though, do consider these three commands our callings as worshipers. First, in light of what Jesus has done, we are told to draw near. This is the first command, starting in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God is the point of the sacrificial work of Christ. The Old Covenant promise to Israel, which was restated in the New Covenant promise of Jeremiah 31, which we looked at a few weeks ago, was this. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The point, the ultimate point of Jesus' death and resurrection is not our salvation. No, he saves us unto restored relationship with God. 
Jesus saves us so that we can be restored to the relationship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden and was lost by sin. Jesus does this not so we can just say, well, isn't that nice to say that I am saved? No, the point of his saving grace is to wash us from our sins so that we might indeed enter into the Holy of Holies to enjoy the presence of God. That's why Jesus sprinkles us with his blood shed on the cross, which corresponds with our washing in the waters of baptism so that we can draw near. We're called to draw near for the heart of worship is knowing and being with God. We are acceptable in his sight because of Jesus. Now we are awaiting the fulfillment until that day when God comes in the new heavens and the new earth and we experience coming near to him as if face to face. But that doesn't mean that we have to wait to obey this command to draw near. A person away from a loved one pulls out photos on their phone. They read emails or letters. They pick up the phone so that they can talk to the person until they're face to face. Though they may not be able to be in their actual presence, they draw as near as possible through the means that they have. God has given us means to draw near to him. He has given us his word that we might hear him speaking to us even now. He has given his spirit to comfort us with his presence. He has given prayer that we might speak to him. He has given fellowship with his people who point us back to him and what he is doing in our lives. And Jesus has made the way for us to approach a holy God and experience his holy, perfect, loving presence whether in prayer, whether in fellowship, whether in devotional reading, draw near. For that's why Christ died for you and for me. Then in verse 23, it gives another command. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 23 is about hope. Our worship is distinguished because we live in a broken, sinful world, and yet we have hope for something more, something better. The Apostles' Creed is a confession of hope. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, the forgiveness of sins, and life everlasting. But hope without faith is merely wishing for something to be true. Our hope in the forgiveness of sins, our hope in the resurrection of the dead, our hope for eternal life is expressed in the trust that these promises are real. And the basis for that hope in the reality of what we read, that he who promised is faithful. We have hope because of what Christ has done. But our enjoyment of that hope is only if we put our trust, our confidence, in what Christ has done for us. This is the very heart and nature of worship. We put our trust in those things that we think are trustworthy. The things that we think will get us what we hope for or what we need. In the midst of difficulty and struggle, 
to make it through, it finds expression in what we trust. If we're trusting in our bank accounts, we begin to give our devotion to them. If we are trusting in our ability to problem solve, we trust in our own thought processes. If our hope is in medical treatment, if our hope is in our health, this reveals what we are worshiping because it shows what our trust is in. We are instead to hold fast to the confession of hope through the blood of Jesus because he who promised is faithful. In the coming of Jesus, according to the promise of the law and the prophets, the nature of Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross for us confirms that the things that we are hoping in, the things that we sing of, the things that we pray for, are not just wishes and desires, they are hopes grounded in the faithfulness of Christ. We are called to worship by trusting in the basis of our hope. And the third calling is to worship together. Before we discuss verses 24, just notice the inclusive collective speech that the author of Hebrews uses. These three commands are, let us, let us, let us. He's not saying, you do this, you do this, you do this but let us. He identifies with his brothers and sisters who are distant enough that he has to write a letter to them. Because he understands that the nature of worship is to see not only ourselves as image bearers meant to glorify God, but as part of the community that God has set us in for his worship. As he uses this language, he, then it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And notice that he says, especially as they wait the day, most likely the day of judgment and the day of reward. And the longer you wait for something, even as it draws closer, often the harder it is to wait. So much more so as our brothers and sisters might be experiencing difficulty, as they might be suffering, they are in need of us, in service of Christ, in worship of Christ, to love them the way that he has called us to. To encourage them to the good works that Christ prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Our worship is meant to be in every arena of life with obedience. Our call to worship God is not merely to sing and pray, to preach and commune at the table. This is really well unpacked in Romans chapter 12 and if you have time for reading and reflection this afternoon, I encourage you maybe to, to reflect on that passage. But in that chapter, Paul talks to the church and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He then goes on to say that we are one body called to share our gifts. In verse 10 it says, love one another. It goes on to say, offer hospitality to love our enemies. What Paul is unpacking there is, if we are to offer ourselves to God in loving sacrifice, it doesn't end at the walls of the church or the synagogue or the house church in which you're meeting. It necessarily means that together you are building one another up so that you might offer the gospel to others in hospitality and care, even for your enemies. We can't obey the commands to love one another if we are not with one another. 
Any more than as spouses learn over time, it's hard to love your spouse if you don't know what they need. It's hard when a, an infant child is crying to figure out what they need unless you go to them to seek out what their need is. How can we love one another? How can we build up each other in their use of their gifts if I don't know what your gift is and you don't know what mine is? If I don't know where you're hurting? If I don't know what your need is? That's why he goes on to say, let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day is drawing near. God has set aside one day out of seven that we might rest And part of that rest is in seeing that we are not alone in our walk, but we have others walking with us. He calls us together to worship him, to rejoice together, to mourn together, to consider together what obedience looks like. And I'll just say, practically, this is why here at Christ Church we view live streams as a band-aid, as a stopgap. It's a provision in the midst of a pandemic. It's a good thing, but it will never be good enough. We are meant to be face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder in our call to worship God, offering our lives as living sacrifices, to share the supply of God's grace, to seek out each other's needs, to hold one another's hands, to pat shoulders in encouragement, to shed tears together. It is the heart of our call to draw near to a holy God, to hold fast to his promises, and to encourage others in light of his faithfulness to serve him together. These are our callings as worshipers. But because of the love that the author of Hebrews has for this church, he issues them a warning because he knows their struggles. The next Section verses 26 to 31. It has a lot of overlap, a lot of similarity to the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And if you want to go back, that's our sermon from March 15th. But what this passage does is out of love for the community, it issues a warning to them. It starts out saying, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. He's warning them about deliberate sin, about repeated chosen sin. When someone falls into sin, we don't seek to cast them out, but we seek to encourage them to repent, to be restored, to enjoy the grace and forgiveness of God, and be helped by His Spirit to walk in new obedience. But if someone rejects that they're in sin, or if they continue to choose sin, then what sacrifice is there for them? We respond to this by excommunication because we see that in the rejection of a willingness to follow Christ is ultimately a rejection of Christ. He helps them pay attention to this warning. He says, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, you Hebrews would know this, that if someone willingly and overtly broke the law, then if there was witnesses, the result was automatically the death penalty. And if physical death can be the result of an outright rejection of God's law, how much more so the danger for us of spiritual death 
if we reject the sacrifice of Christ and the call to follow him. For really, what is deliberate sin but trampling under our feet, as it says, of the Son of God? To say, you gave your life, you died upon the cross, you forever sit at the right hand of God as one who has inaugurated the new covenant, no thanks, I'm going to choose this idol instead. Even in situations where there is not an overt pursuit of a deliberate sin, part of what he's addressing is what is happening in this community. Because their sin may not be overt adultery, their sin may not be overt greed or lust or theft, but what are they being tempted to do to turn their back on Christ to go back to the old sacrifices, to the old system, to say, it's nice that Jesus died for my sins, but I can take it or leave it. He says, if you choose to leave the blood of Christ, if you choose to treat it as anything other than holy, that is trampling on the blood of the Son of God, that brings about the wrath, the rage of the Spirit of grace. Do you notice that comparison? The Spirit is the Spirit of grace, the Spirit of giving, the Spirit of overt kindness, reflecting the love of God the Father who has given us the blood of His only Son. What is the most outrageous thing we can do in light of God's grace but to reject it by rejecting Christ? I have some friends and family who have jokingly said that they can't work for the State Department or they can't be overseas missionaries because they lack adventurous tastes or have sensitive stomachs. They realize that there are cultures out there where delicacies consist of raw fish or soup made from bird's nests or monkeys or other meat that is not something they want to eat. And they realize that to reject such hospitable offerings is to give offense to your hosts. And how much worse to not just say no, but to show revulsion for that gift. You can't take or leave those offerings. How much more so can we treat the blood of Christ as something to take or leave? If we can understand the need to honor the generosity of our neighbors and friends, how much more so the need to honor the generosity of God who offers the blood of his own son that we might have forgiveness of our sins. If we say Jesus' sacrifice is not enough, it's not good enough, I need something else, we are told there is no other sacrifice for our sins. To reject Jesus is to find ourselves without recourse. See, worship is about value. It is about recognizing and responding to what is worthy. And therefore, if it is worthy, to respond by obedience. As worshipers, we don't turn to things that can't save us. As a rejection of Christ's power to save. And we certainly don't treat the gift with contempt by deliberate lifestyles of sin. 
We are made for worship, but we are tempted to treat other things as more worthy of worship and therefore to denigrate the blood of Christ. Be warned. But then verse 39 encourages. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The effect of what he writes here in verses 32 through 39 in this practical encouragement is pretty well summarized in what Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God has started, he will complete. So he takes them back to the beginning in verse 32. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, Enlightening being seeing the light and seeing the truth and hearing and responding to the gospel. The wonder and beauty of Christ. They drew near to that by putting their faith in Christ, by receiving the washing by his blood and being baptized and marked off as his. At first when you were enlightened. And then how does that drawing near to God in Christ demonstrate itself? Well, it really looks like the second and third calling we looked at in the opening verses. First, the call to endure. We're called to hold fast to the confession of hope. And we see that reflected here in this passage. It describes how in the former days you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. They had hope in the midst of of affliction. And not just an internal feeling of hope, but hope with flesh on it. Hope with blood and guts. Look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, don't miss that joyfully part, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Holding fast to our confession of hope entails holding loosely to our earthly treasures. Hope in eternal life, heavenly reward, means that we can count all a loss for the sake of following Christ. Their early response of worship was to draw near to the light of Christ. It was expressed in endurance, and then it was expressed in stirring one another up in love and good works. When their fellow brothers and sisters were in prison, what did they do? They went and visited them, which probably would have entailed feeding them, spending their own money, gathering their own food for their sustenance to encourage them. When other people were being mistreated, it says sometimes being partners with those so treated. You see your brother and sister struggling, what did you do? You didn't shrink back. But knowing their call to serve God, you joined them even in the midst of their difficulties. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 36, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The response in that parable was when? Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The writer of Hebrews takes seriously the the warning that he writes in verses 26 through 31. That's echoed again here in verses 37 and 38, that we can't claim the promises and rewards of following Christ if we don't endure in faith and hope. 
But instead of causing us to fear, he wants us to turn back to the hope that we have in Christ. Many of us struggle with endurance, with confidence, are tempted to shrink back. The answer is then to go back to Christ, who is the reason that we can endure, who is the reason that we can draw near to God, who is the reason that we can seek out our brothers and sisters in love for the sake of good works. If our first encounters with this good news in Jesus produced that zealous type of worship, he says, if there was obedience and willingness to suffer, then go back to Jesus, who produced that in the first place. You did it before. This is what it looked like. In Christ, you can do it again. Brothers and sisters, we are made, we were born to worship as Angela was to dance. Sin, though, is like a tragic accident that has left us with limbs twisted, with an inability to hear the music, with hearts fearful to draw near. But Christ, who healed the actual limbs of the lame, sings the beauty of the good news of Jesus and takes our hearts of fear and stone and turns them into hearts of flesh that can beat according to the beauty of God's word so that we can dance so that we can worship brothers and sisters all that Jesus has done is that we might glorify God so let us draw near let us hold fast and let's encourage one another amen Lord help us See what Christ has done as being for your glory and help us rejoice that you might see fit to use us for your glory. Help us to hold fast. Help us to encourage one another. Draw us to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.